Hey there, friends. Jay Revel here. Happy New Year. I'm so glad to be back with you after a little brief uh, holiday hiatus. I hope that uh, you found some time to get on the golf course uh, and break through the winter doldrums. I know uh, a couple of walks I've taken so far this year have really helped me uh, to get my mind frame set up uh, for hopefully a really successful year. Uh, feeling good about a lot of things. Uh, it's a, a, a weird time in our world, but uh, I always like to tell people golf is a great way uh, to break out of uh, troublesome thoughts and move your focus into things uh, that can be a little bit more productive for your life. Uh, and that's why it's such a timely opportunity to talk to my friend, the professor, Kevin Moore. Uh, Kevin is one of my favorite people in golf. He's just an incredibly interesting uh, individual. He's someone who uh, his primary career is as a professor of mathematics at the University of Georgia uh, up in the big city of Athens. Uh, but he has founded a couple of really uh, fascinating golf startups, one of them being uh, the company Squares to Circles, the other being the newly founded Golf Blueprint, both use player-supplied data to help people build roadmaps to lower scores, uh, something that we all could use. Uh, but what's so interesting is is how Kevin uses his background in mathematics and then applies that to his passion for golf. He's also someone who's incredibly passionate uh, about the role he plays with the New Club Golf Society uh, as their uh, primary ambassador. And he is uh, a, a truly great ambassador for the game uh, in general and someone who uh, undoubtedly is helping that growth of the society movement uh, in golf here in the United States. Uh, Kevin's someone that I've known for a few years. Uh, it's been a minute since I've had a chance to really uh, talk to him uh, uh, at length about everything that's going on in his world and everything that's going on in the world of golf. So it was great to catch up with him to kick off the new year. Again, we're all sitting around this winter trying to figure out how we can uh, build a uh, a pathway to lower scores. And uh, if you haven't come up with your plan yet, I would strongly encourage you to take a look at some of uh, the work that uh, uh, Kevin Moore is doing through his company. So without further ado, I will turn this conversation over to the chat that I had recently with Kevin Moore. I think you're going to enjoy it. Uh, and I, again, appreciate you tuning in. Thanks for being with me to kick off the new year. Uh, here's the latest conversation. Kevin. Jay, happy new year. Happy new year to you, my friend. How is everything uh, up in the classic city these days? So it's we're hold, we're holding down the fort up here. Um, same old, same old. Just a lovely college town. Tell you what, the last couple of weeks being that sleepy college town, there's no place better to be, you know, in my opinion, as a faculty member up here. Just get to own the town a little bit more than we normally do during the school year. So, oh, I um, I know the feeling, man. Down here, you know, Tallahassee, it's always like, you know, the greatest days of the year in some ways are uh, when the kids leave for winter break and when they head out for summer, man. It uh, Things just kind of go back to uh, a little sleepier feeling and uh, the streets are a little uh, easier to navigate. And uh, uh, I, th that's my chance to go down on campus and eat some of the places I, I used to eat when I was in college without having to fight the traffic. Yeah, I don't know how you feel about it. I mean, I know you're in the capital a little bit, so it's a little bigger. But one of the things I love about a college town is you get those sort of seasons of the of the campus and the uh, 
in the city, right, where you have those those really lively, especially during college football, where it's busy and packed, and then you get the winter break and it's dead. And I don't know, just it's very refreshing as you move through those, and it's always something different. So I've always appreciated that. It is. It kind of gives you, like you were saying, you know, you have certain parts of the year too where you know you don't want to be you know sleepy all year long. That's uh, that's a good way to sort of go out of business as a community. Mm-hmm. So uh, you get that injection, you know, every fall and spring. Uh, you know, fresh faces, new ideas, uh, people coming to town to, you know, set their, their life on a new course. And, uh, it, it is exciting. And, you know, this year's been, you know, well, I'll say this year, last year, 2020 was so weird because just that football energy one, our team is terrible. Uh, and then two, yeah, you got a, a rough year. Oh year. man, it's awful. Just, I, I only went to one game. I went to the North Carolina game, which somehow we won. Uh, and yeah, just yeah. really had a blast. That was, that was, you know, the highlight of the fall, but, um, yeah, football team's terrible. And it's just, you know, they're, you know, they were letting, I don't know, 20,000 people in the stands all spread out. And I don't even know if they've hit that. So it's just like that energy that we normally get felt totally sapped from the fall. So, um, everybody, now our basketball teams eat up with COVID. So we're trying to, you know, everybody's just kind of sitting around with nothing to do. <laughs> yep, yep. I know a big thing for us down here in terms of the spring, too, the gym dogs. Um, we're huge in their gymnastics. Yeah. Okay. Interesting to see if that can breathe a little life into the into the university in terms of the sports. I like it. I, I've only been um, through Athens a couple of times, but that it truly is a, a wonderful college town. I, I remember a friend of mine uh, who was uh, – he grew up in Dalton, Georgia, uh, had a lot of friends at UGA. We were, I had a couple of friends up there and I remember one Friday I walked into, you know, his room at the fraternity house. I said, man, I got this invite to go up to Athens for the weekend. I'm never been thinking about going. He's like, Oh man, I love Athens. It's just coolest town. You got to go. He goes, hell I'll drive. Let's go. And we hopped in the car, got up to Athens. And I remember walking around the streets and, you know, I would see these sort of, you know, kind of big, you know, chunky, you know, Southern Georgia boys with the most beautiful girls I've ever seen in my <laughs> life. And I just looked at my friend and I'm like, I- I've made a massive mistake, <laughs> a-, a huge life altering, you know, uh, decision, uh, might need to be made here. I, the guys that look like me are the ones that are, that are doing the best up here. I'm, I messed up. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Jay. I, I, I had the same sort of feeling when I showed up the first time here. Um, so I'm right there with you. I couldn't believe it, man. I was like, man, because, you know, up here, T- Tallahassee's funny because it's a very southern town, but, you know, m- the vast majority of the students all come from South Florida. So, like, student cultures, just this, sort of this interesting conflict. And, uh, you know, so, like, when I went up to Georgia, I was like, holy cow, like, these are these are my people. Uh, but, yeah, it's a cool town, just a, just a great vibe. And, uh, you know, I, I, a lot of my favorite bands have uh, hailed from Athens. So uh, just always enjoyed that culture up there. I say, if you're looking for eating, drinking, and music in a lively community, this town has it in spades. Yeah, um, yeah I'm just – I was shocked the day I got here, and 10 years later, I'm still shocked for just how much is going on in the town and how much the, the community just loves the town and really injects, you know, so much energy and livelihood into it. Well, there's such a there, – there's a big thing that I've always kind of studied. There, there's, you know, in a former life, I was – really uh, uh, into the whole world of how to build great downtowns and, you know, how to build great cities and still dabble in that a little bit. And Athens is a great, you know, case study in a lot of ways, but 
you know, anytime you can walk into a community and you can feel instantly that, you know, deep sense of pride in the place, um, it really just makes a massive difference. I, I just, I've always thought that's one of those sparks, um, that, that great cities have to have. And, um, Athens just, yeah, like you said, has it all in, in spades. Absolutely. Uh, and I, you know, I used to get deep in the widespread panic scene back in college. Oh, so, yeah. you know, that... <laughs> I'm drinking <laughs> some, uh, the widespread panic jittery Joe's coffee. Blend oh right now, man. So. Yeah, now, now talking. Might have to get on, uh, see if I can get a delivery this far <laughs> South. That's, that's pretty good stuff. <laughs> yeah. JB and the boys, uh, they know how to do it. Um, absolutely. Can't beat it. Well, how's everything going uh, in the in your golf life these days, man? What uh, you've been you've been busy. You've got some new ventures, and um, you know, really excited to kind of hear a little bit more about some of that. Yeah, man, crazy crazy year, right? Twenty twenty, a lot of ups and a lot of downs in the golf in the golf game. That's for sure. Um, I was just thinking just the other day. Okay, what are my you know twenty twenty one golf goals and reflecting on twenty twenty? And it was you know the we had so many of us had so many things canceled, right. You know, either trips or weddings or whatever they were. Um, and then on the other, on the flip side of it, you know, I, I got to meet a new business partner and start a new business venture with golf blueprint building off the squares, a circle sort of stuff. So it was this really blend of a, of an up and down year, I think, which a lot of people experience in the golf world, just a lot, a lot of positives, new relationships, and a lot of negatives in the sense of canceled trips or just, you know, just a lot of the events around the golf world and um, the political world that influenced the golf world. So I think I'm just a, a good case study in that for sure. Oh yeah. Well, you hit the nail on the head, just the ups and downs and kind of getting your game pulled in a lot of different directions. I mean, I had the wildest year where, you know, at one point I was you know, creeping up on a four handicap. I had the worst case of the shank that I've ever had in my life. Yeah, I remember. I think you tweeted oh, about that. Oh, God. At some yeah. Point. Twitter were, saved you were me. You were in a dark place. I was bad, man. I mean, it was, it was like, you know, you're just staring at the wall at night, staring at the ceiling at night, going like, I don't, you know, and the worst part is, is like, it was so bad. I, but I couldn't wait to get back out there again because I just wanted to find the solution. Yeah. Well, um, what, got, what got you out of it? Well, you know, as, as I was, you know, so desperate i just started tweeting uh about you know my my troubles and uh i i had a couple of people kind of come to the rescue man i had i had a couple of good tips come my way and went out there on the range one day and i really what i it's i kind of have a kind of have a weird golf swing it's sort of a <laughs> shut to shut move right where i you know the, i don't really ever open the club face on the way back but i i you know, kind of turn and rip the hips through it and, uh, end up hitting a cut somehow. It's just kind of a weird deal. Um, but I sent one, one guy a video and he said, man, you're just, you're just getting jammed up, you know, way inside. Uh, and I want you to try to basically, because your, your swing kind of, you start inside and then sort of come over the top, you know, and hit this, you know, shut face cut. Um, and he said, I want you to try to think about reversing that, you know, just taking it as far outside as you can and then dropping it back in. And, you know, it, it, it was crazy because it was like a light switch going off mm -hmm. and it totally changed my game for, you know, four or five months. I, from, from, I got the shanks, I think in April uh -huh. and May through August, I probably played the best golf my entire life. Um, it was, it was just, no, I mean, I got down to almost a plus two handicap, 
I went from a four to almost a plus two in the in two months. It was a day. It was like the damnest thing. That pumps yeah. me up. Yeah, hearing that, it's isn't it like the greatest feeling in the world when you go from just the darkest, deepest oh. hole, and then all of a sudden it's like you're a new person, and it's, it's the easiest game you've ever played. Oh yeah, no, it was it was truly it was remarkable. I mean, I, I you know, it's like every I hope every golfer at some point gets that chance to have the feeling of you know, like, you know, you're getting, you know, the Icarito, you're, you're almost about to touch the sun. Uh-huh. Um, it, it really is just, it, it, it was, it was incredible. It was such a fun summer. I felt like I just had total control over what I was doing on the golf course, uh, for the first time really since, since high school. And, um, and it was, it was a ton of fun. And then, you know, of course, you know, life catches back up, you know, and started a new business in the fall and, there went all my time and now I'm creeping back up to about a two again. You know, so. <laughs> it's a perfect summary. Like your year is a perfect summary of golf, right? Sometimes we have it and sometimes we don't. It's, I don't know, right? That's the, I think that's one of the things that draws us most to the game that there's times where you feel like you have it mastered and that's never going to leave you. And then you could wake up the next morning and all of a sudden it feels like you've never touched a club in your life and you're just lost as can be. Oh yeah. And well, and you know, like I said, it's so funny. I feel like when I'm lost, that's when I want to play the most, which mm. is a weird thing. It's like, I, I just, I feel like I got to get out there and find this. I, Cause I can't stop thinking about it when it's lost, you know? Yeah. I'm, I, I think I'm a little bit of the, I don't want to say I'm the opposite. I just, when I get lost, then like just going and playing a normal 18 holes just frustrates me. I, I'm very, I get overly frustrated with my game and all, all I want to do when I get lost is like, find something new and creative that's when i really want to uh-huh. travel and golf is when i'm lost. Yeah. like yeah. just hit the road find a new course where i'm not going to care about my game you know and just reconnect or hit up sweetens and you know just spend a full day there not even scoring my ball just hitting golf shots uh you know things like that when i get lost that's what i that's what i seek out well there's something to be said about that because i find that when you get into that if you can get to that mindset or one of those places um, especially if it's somewhere you don't know, right. You, you know, like, you know, when you're playing your everyday course, you kind of have a plan every time, you know, you kind of, you usually try to play it virtually the same every time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you go somewhere different or you go somewhere like Sweetens that kind of commands you to play things, you know, a little different every time you make a swing, you, you can fall back into that, just sort of making that an athletic reaction to the ball. Um, you know, you're, you're sort of, have to imagine new shots and and sometimes that helps you i feel like kind of get back into some sort of uh groove just you just kind of get back to being a golfer again versus someone who's you know grinding and sweating out you know you know hand position and you know tempo and all this other stuff that you know drags you down yeah it's something like about stripping away expectations right that just by stripping those away when you're when you're somewhere new or different um you just connect with the game just differently and just, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so you're talking about, you know, golf blueprint, uh, new venture. Give me the, the synopsis of golf blueprint. How does it, what, what's the company all about? What's the objective and how are things going so far? Yeah, things are great. I'll start kind of from the beginning and just try to keep a, a longer story brief, but um, shout out to my partner, Nico. He was, he was one of my first squares of circles clients. So he had heard me on Andy's podcast. I think it was and reached out to me and we were, uh, he's just a fascinating golf story. 
pitcher was going to be, you know, drafted into the majors and blew out his shoulder his senior year. And all of a sudden that was gone. And he's just a high level performer. I mean, just, you know, upper elite athlete. And so we need to find a new outlet and someone uh, kind of upset him on this, one of his first rounds out on a golf course. And he decided golf was going to be his thing. In hmm. nine months, I think it was nine months later, he won his club championship. Oh, wow. Right. Just like, just put in a ton of work of effort and just learned a golf game and learned how to do it. And fast forward a couple of years later and he's, you know, making golf his thing, just wants to play. He wants to play competitively and he wants to play professionally, not necessarily be a PGA tour player, but just like as a hobby teed up in professional events and <laughs> have fun with it. And so he reached out to me to help him out with some stuff. And I tell you what, man, you talk about like the Bryson movement. Well, Nico's already there. He can, he can bomb at three forty without even blinking it. Uh, wow. So we blew through strategy stuff really, really quick. Uh, it was pretty simple. Like if the hole is this wide, you're hitting driver. Other than that, you know, you're hitting up as far as you can. And, and we quickly learned how terrible of a wedge player he was. Um, <laughs> once we got that down, it was like, dude, you're shooting 73s and you're, you know, hitting, you know, hitting it in play 13 of the 14 holes and whatever. Like, come on, man, what's going on here? And so we started designing practice plans for him uh, in, his, in attacking his wedge game, things to work on. And then, uh, and then since I'm very stubborn with my own game, he started doing it for me. And essentially, Golf Blueprint emerged from that. We're like, man, this is kind of fun, designing practice plans and helping each other get better. And if there's one thing we know, we're all terrible self-assessors of our own game. And also, <laughs> we're all terrible at like, making ourselves practice. We're like, why don't we do this for other people? Um, and so he's, he's again, a fascinating, just awesome guy. He's working on his PhD in some learning theories areas. Um, and then with my background, also simultaneously mathematics and psychology, uh, we're like, man, that's, that's just really hammer this practice thing. How can we help other golfers be better? How can we be, you know, maybe the best equivalent would be a, a upper tier personal trainer where it's like, no, like when you go to the course, we're going to tell you exactly what to do to help make you better. So you don't have to think about that at all. Just execute what we have for you and you're going to become a better golfer. And uh, so kind of the last year, we just stumbled through that, trying some things out, you know, getting some early members with golf blueprint and just trying to figure out what works for people, what doesn't work for people, what helps them get better. And uh, just a great learning experience through 2020 in terms of launching that and getting a nice stable of members to, uh, to learn from and help out. So obviously your background in mathematics is a huge part of that. Um, tell me a little bit about your journey. Obviously, you know, you, you, uh, as a professor at UGA, you know, mathematics is a huge part of your life. Um, I'd love to kind of hear the story of your journey from someone who, you know, played college golf and, you know, very competitive, uh, to going back and diving into that world and, uh, just how all that comes together. Yeah. So where, where to start in terms of, I guess I'll start with just, uh, like, yeah, I'll start blend the competitive golf and the, the mathematics part. So, um, I picked up golf, you know, my parents had me picking up golf and I ended up having a really awesome high school coach in Greg Leg Leggett that helped me develop a, a solid golf game. And that landed me at the University of Akron, uh, where I played college golf. Uh, and I originally went there to be a computer engineer. Um, but computer engineering courses, especially I remember the circuits course were just extremely boring for me. Just nothing engaging about them. I was falling asleep in them. Um, but, you know, I had, this, I had this, these two mathematics professors that just they seemed to love what they were doing. Uh, and so I approached them about, you know, what they do and are they enjoying it? And they both 
they truly loved being a professor of mathematics. Um, and so I switched over to an applied mathematics degree from that. And as luck would have it, they were launching a brand new bachelor's and master's in applied mathematics um, program where you would get both of those degrees in five years and also do uh, essentially a thesis under uh, and research project underneath their applied math program in the College of Engineering. Um, so you would team up with a, the engineering group to do some research along there, which included physics and some other areas. And so I jumped on that. Uh, and so they kind of took me under their wing. This was about my sophomore year in college. And and just, I thrived. I loved it. Loved working with them. Loved that they had me on their research projects. You know, I think as of my junior year, so my third year, year out of five, so the last two and a half years, I was working research projects under their guidance um, and just had this really awesome tailored program uh, throughout the, the back end of my university background career. And as I don't know if I, luck would have it is the best way to frame it, but this worked out really well. Um, I was falling out of love with golf at the time. Um, just the did not have a good college experience, was losing my game, was losing my passion. It was becoming a job, um, developed the driver yips. So honestly, uh, I can say by the time the fifth year rolled around, I just, I didn't want to play golf. I mean, the clubs were put away and for the next 10 years, um, they stayed away. Uh, I'd break them out maybe five times a year um, when friends wanted to play or something. And other than that, no desire to play, no desire to do much of anything with golf. Um, and I, the reason I said as luck would have it, well, that really freed me up to do whatever I wanted. So I um, ended up out at Arizona State University because I got sick and tired of the cold weather, uh, to be honest. That's really the main reason I chose that program. I always teach my major advisor. Um, she always tells the story as if she recruited me really hard out there. And I was like, I showed up for the Fiesta Bowl with Ohio State and Notre Dame and realized <laughs> wearing shorts in December is actually is a pretty cool thing. Yeah. Um, and then it happened to fit that they had a really good program in mathematics education. So that brings in the psychology side of things. Um, and I'm like, well, why not give this a try? Let's see. You know, they had an assistantship open that they, you know, Dr. Marilyn Carlson offered me and I took her up on and uh, off I went to Arizona. Um, so, yeah, I spent four years out there. And then in 2010, after I graduated, ended up here at the University of Georgia uh, and, you know, kind of hit the ground running again. I didn't have golf distracting me. So I really, I, I burnt the candle at both ends with my job, just really pushed hard. You know, tenure was the goal. Uh, my eye was always on that and just putting in, you know, good quality work um, that the field would value and find as a good contribution. And so I could get that tenure mark. And then uh, to try to cut this off and not become too long winded, once tenure hit, it gave me an opportunity to step back and say, okay, you know, I've accomplished this. This is a major milestone what's what's missing in my life now you know what what can i do because i you know i couldn't continue working the hours i was working and that and that push i was doing it just that wasn't sustainable um and i knew that i knew that when i was going into it and and made the conscious choice to burn it now and then step back and say okay you know what do we need to do to be a little bit more fulfilled and that's when i realized you know the whole golf had left the fact that i wasn't playing golf anymore something that i cherished so much in my life, you know, before I got burnt out on it uh, and realized, you know what, at the same time, I'd been caddying for a friend on the Hooters tour, um, Blake Sattler, um, when he was down this way, I realized like, hey, there's something missing here. Let me get back into it. And so that's when I decided to pick up golf again and dive back in. No, oh, that's cool. Uh, so how much caddying did you do while you were out there? Um, it was probably, I bet maybe, I don't know, 
two to four or five events on the Hooters tour um, yeah. during the summer. Cause it was typically during summer when I was on summer break, you know, so I didn't have classes tying me down. So I could kind of do whatever and he'd be, you know, that Hooters tour really burn up the Southeast here. Um, yeah. yeah I'm sure you're familiar with that. And so whenever it would time up, you know, they ran one over at Mount Vintage. I, I did that one a lot up at the Hooch, Chattahoochee. Um, a golf and country club, I think it's called right here in Gainesville, Georgia. Um, they had an awesome one over at McCormick, just awesome event, you know, all host housing, just, they really, really roll out the red carpet for everybody. Um, so just a couple of those every, every summer. Hmm, that's cool. I would, I would think that, you know, while you're doing that, your, uh, you know, mathematically inclined brain probably starts turning quite a bit thinking about, you know, the analytics of all that, you know, is that something that probably played into, you know, some of the work you're doing now? Oh yeah. Uh, honestly, the analytics part probably hurts my game more than it helps my own in terms of when I'm <laughs> on the course, I've always said I'm a better caddy than I am a, a player when it comes to like just thinking through things and like making a decision. Um, but yeah, so on the analytics side, I started doing some of the analytics stuff, um, for Blake when I was playing with him. And then when I got back into competitive, the competitive mid-am circuit started doing it for my own game because I got really fortunate, you know, and, and stumbled on to uh, Andy Johnson and, and his love for golf course architecture and getting to know him. I, I really developed an affinity for golf course architecture. Uh, mm -hmm. And what that led me to do then was a lot more travel. And I used the, the USGA events as a good excuse to travel, to go play, you know, the Wak Chung Valleys, the Essex County Clubs, um, those types of places as my qualifiers. And, well, the, the one issue with that is I couldn't play practice rounds, um, you know, with the traveling and when they would allow the practice round. So I had to start doing everything by satellite and just, you know, putting <laughs> down some analytics to it. So doing that for my own competitive game. And then for Blake uh, and a couple other friends that play professionally, it, that sort of developed in the squares of circles then where it's like, okay, let's do this for some other people. Um, specifically, you know, a lot of high level amateurs, college teams, and then professionals. Uh, so infusing that analytics, you know, the analytics lens into, uh, really breaking down golf courses and people's games. What kind of, uh, you know, data or, or factors, uh, are you looking at primarily when you're, when you're breaking down a golf course or, or just breaking down someone's game? Yeah. So there's a couple different. I guess I'll speak to two specific things because there's lots of different ways to approach it. But two of the specific things I do the most is I break down a golf course for a certain player. So I'll take that player's profile and their dispersion profile throughout their bag. And we'll sit down one-on-one -on -one and just go through a golf course that they're going to be playing and step through hole by hole talking about decision making, you know, based on course conditions, wind. Um, pin positions, you know, and, and obviously their game then and their specific player profile. And we'll just break down the best way to attack a golf course. Um, saying, you know, analytically, probabilistically, this, this is how you should attack, attack this golf course. And we'll put you in best position for a, a solid week. Um, then on the other side of it is in this, uh, I guess this gets a little bit into sort of a, a relationship with golf blueprint. Uh, where I'll look at a player's profile and their sort of recent performances and their trends and think about, okay, where can you get better? You know, looking at the analytics and the data that you're out, that you're outputting specifically, obviously around strokes gained and some other data that, um, I, that we have them collect, you know, where can you get the most payoff in terms of your practice time and what you should be targeting? Um, and it's not just so simple as like, where are you losing shots? It's, 
where are you losing shots, but also where can you gain shots, right? Because there's certain areas a player could be losing shots, but that might not be their best practice time. You know, that's not something that they can actually gain the most shots in terms of the way they play golf and the way they see golf. Um, so really then attacking each player specifically about how they can get better based on, on their data and their player profile. That's interesting. Um, do, do you see kind of a light switch go off with people when you start breaking down some of these numbers and, and, and data with them? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think one of the things I pride my, myself the most on, and I think this is true with Nico as well in terms of golf blueprint, but then in, as well as squares of circles, like one of our goals and my goals is every player I work with, I want them to, to become self-sufficient, right? My goal is that they are no longer reliant on me after we get, you know, maybe depending on the player, it could be six months, it could be 12 months, whatever it is. My hope is that they're able to assimilate and take on the way I'm talking through things and looking at things so that eventually they can just do it on autopilot and do it on their own. Um, and that way they can be as self-sufficient as possible when they're traveling moving from place to place. They don't have to rely on me. They can do it in real time on the golf course. Um, and so I think a lot of the ways I try to work with players is to help that light bulb come off to really not only talk about through what we want to do, but why we want to do it, why we're making certain decisions and what's the thinking that goes, that goes into it. Um, so that way, if they ever don't want to offload it to me, they don't have to, you know, they can take on themselves. Um, cause I think something that's true about a lot of golfers, especially high level golfers, as well as every golfer, we're inquisitive. Most of us are. So we want to mm-hmm. know the why we want to know what to do and how to do things, um, rather than just being told, do this. Um, so really, really try to strive to embrace that with every, everybody I work with and everybody Nico and I work with. Yeah, you hear a lot of the um, comparisons uh, to sort of, you know, this you know data-driven movement that's happening in golf uh, today, particularly at the you know professional and high-level, high-level amateur, um, uh, competitive level. Um, a lot of the comparisons to Moneyball, uh, you know, the great you know uh, book by Michael Lewis and a wonderful movie, Brad Pitt. Um, I happened to watch it the other day. It got me kind of thinking about, you know, this conversation and how, how would you compare, uh, you know, when someone says or throws that out there, um, how, how would you compare those two kind of approaches in terms of like money ball and what's going on in golf? Yeah. I think if I had to say it succinctly, I would say, you know, we're probably 20 years behind a lot of the analytics used in say a baseball, maybe it's more like 10 years, you know, I'm sort of just using maybe an exaggerated number with 20, but where, so where analytics is in baseball, the, their ability to make inferences based on the data and inferences that are solid and well-founded and empirically based and um, tested, they're there in a lot of ways, right? It's not only, Hmm. well, here's what the data you know, here's the data, here's the numbers. It's like, this is what it tells us about what we should be doing, how we should be improving, what we should be looking for. Um, you know, that's all the world of inference. I always say data is one thing, but data doesn't tell you anything, right? Everything after that's inferential, mm-hmm. which is a very, that is a very scholarly subjective area. It starts very subjective and it's a very, it has to have this huge, 
effort of inquiry where you're testing competing hypotheses. You're trying to take the bias or what you believe and disprove it, right? Because it's through trying to disprove your biases and belief that you make them more solid and actually give them legitimacy. Um, and, you know, baseball, they, they're a long, they've done that for a long time now. Um, you know, that money ball movements, it's been around for a while. And you're seeing, especially these last, you know, I'd say three to five years in terms of how defenses are playing, how pitchers are playing, how batters are hitting. Um, you've seen that now play out where it's really fully infused into the game. And I think we're just, we're still a ways away from that in golf in terms of what inferences can we draw from this data in terms of how to play the game, how to attack practice, um, where the best practice time is in terms of investing per um, specific player. Uh, that's sort of the comparison uh, I would make there. Um, you know, when, when you watch or, you know, the movie or, you know, probably particularly in the movie, you know, obviously they're cramming things into two hours, right? The sort of, you know, take away from the analytics side, you know, Jonah Hill's character was, you know, touting, uh, just get on base. You got to find the guys that get on base, right? It, it doesn't matter how they get on base. As long as they do so, that's that's kind of the, you know, at least the uh, the theme they, they weave into that story. And it seems like in golf, the, the theme that's emerging, if you were going to simplify it, might be, you know, send it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, get it as far down there as you can, and, and your odds uh, tend to – Improved dramatically. Is that a that a pretty accurate statement yeah. based on what? Yeah, you're I mean, saying? if you're going to simplify it as much as possible, sending it is the thing, right? Like, distance is king. It are you know it pretty much always has been. If you can send it while keeping you know a proper dispersion, like your goal is to push up as far as possible, and it, with very very few exceptions. Um, there's very few. Now, the caveat to that is this, and this is where. You know, I think this sort of inferential idea comes into play and thinking about it is like, okay, if we get to a specific player now, uh, I'll, I'll make up a name. I'll just use like Brendan Todd as a name because, you know, everybody's familiar with him with the wonderful years he's had recently, right? Just a great story. And, and people know what I, the, the comparison I'm making here in terms of he's a short hitter. Well, there the question is, is it worth him, him to chase distance or would he actually lose some skill because of the way his swing is structured and what he's tried to do to get over the, uh, you know, to get over the difficulties he have. When we get down to a specific player, then there is the question of, well, what's the best approach for that player in terms of what they can realistically accomplish while keeping a high level game? Um, you know, that's where that sort of inferences and nuances gets into the, into the mix. Yeah, see, that's fascinating. I, 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 I'm not a particularly long hitter, but you know, when I'm, when I'm playing well, I'm, I'm very reliable off the tee. Like, I mean, I, I just, I just split fairways when I'm playing good, and then usually for me, it's just making up, you know, strokes on the green. Um, and uh, you know, I've, but I've watched some of my friends who have really picked up some distance uh, in the last, you know, five years. I mean, in, in, in it makes such a difference when I see them that you know they're it doesn't really offend me or anything you know that they're fifty yards further than me but they're playing a completely different kind of golf course you know from once you're you're that far up and and it just makes a massive difference I mean I particularly on the you know par fives absolutely I I and I have a question for you you're such a spirited mm -hmm. golfer what's your take on this whole analytics thing and the distance movement um, you know we're 
That's a, you well, know, you got to have some really rich thoughts on that. <laughs> you know, I, I think it starts with, with obviously, you know, what kind of golf you're, you know, you're playing. If you're someone who's, um, you know, deep into the competitive golf scene. And I, when I say competitive golf, scene, I'm talking about, you know, kind of like where, where you outlined earlier, you know, the mid-am uh, competitions, the collegiate players all the way up to, you know, uh, the professional uh, world. I don't know how you can ignore, uh, you know, what's happening. I, I think you have to be willing to uh, look at what data can do for you. Everything from, you know, uh, you know, refining your swing via track, man, all the way to working with someone like yourself, you know, who can help you learn how to uh, uh, approach a golf course analytically. I mean, it just the payoff seems to be there. Uh, so, and it's increasingly hard to you know refute that. Um, you know, we were talking about earlier, you know, stripping things down, kind of getting to, uh, you know, almost an escape mode with golf. Sometimes, you know, most of the golf that I play is that, um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm definitely a big fan of, um, you know, the Michael Murphy world of sort of mysticism in golf. I, I, I have, you know, I, I sometimes I feel like, you know, like a golf shaman or something, right? I mean, I, I, I love that side of the game. Like I true to me, that's what keeps me coming back. Now I say that, and then, you know, I go play in a tournament every now and then you start sniffing around the lead and you, you know, you kind of get into a different mode and saying, so, sometimes what's funny to me, like when I'm, when I win a golf tournament, it's when I'm, I've got an understanding of where my game is and how to manage it. But also at the same time, I allow myself to sort of slip into that, you know, mystic a little bit and, and kind of, you know, shed off a lot of uh, uh, layers of thought and just and just be able to play. So it's kind of a weird, you know, I, I kind of personally have sort of a weird mix of it. But, you know, I, I, I think the, the only thing that maybe worries me about it is, you know, when we start talking about, future generations of golfers and where they come up and how they learn the game. I, 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 I still just think the world of, you know, stories like, you know, Seve Ballesteros and how he learned how to play with, you know, such incredible feel and, um, you know, very natural uh, approach to, you know, how to play a golf course, almost that sort of artisan, a golf artisan. I've always mm -hmm. thought that was, you know, something that uh, was really compelling about golf uh, I also think a lot of it is when you think about the equipment we have today, the equipment in many ways dictates the approach, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, what, what we have that, you know, especially again, high level golfers are using nowadays, you know, compared to what they were using 35 years ago. I mean, it's just completely night and day, particularly with, you know, the, your, uh, well really through, you know, every club in the bag. But I mean, when you think about the ball, uh, the way it behaves, the way that, uh, you know, your metal woods, uh, you know, behave. I mean, it's just, just totally different. So, you know, back then I think, um, that those clubs required a little bit more, uh, of an artisan approach, but today, uh, you know, the way that the game is played analytics just is, is a, a huge part of it. Yeah. You bring up an excellent point there with the equipment. That's where that's where my interest, I think, all lies the most with the current ongoing discussion around the game of golf equipment. Because, and I admit my bias. Like when it, if it comes to choosing something, 
the grounds of the game are huge for me. Like they, they deserve the most privilege and to be upheld, you know, in, in the greatest ways. Um, so I, I admit that bias and I just, for whatever reason, I think just thinking about, you know, the McKenzie's, the Rosses, the old Tom Morris's and developing the grounds of the game and the way they were thinking about things like that is definitely where I lean towards wanting to, to privilege. Um, but on the equipment side, just one of the fascinating questions to me, like, yeah, TrackMan and what we've done with analytics and data, like learning how to optimize impact, right? Like what is the most optimal impact that can be, that can be repeated and done in a way that maintains a functional dispersion pattern, right? That, that Bryson, that's what he's doing. He's the best at that. And there's no questions to be asked on that. I don't think anybody can question that. And what he's doing within the rules of golf is to me, like something that I applaud. It's, it's fascinating and it's great, but I sit there and wonder like, what would that look like with 90, 95 equipment or 85 equipment or whatever number we want to choose? Like, what would that optimization look like that could be done effectively, you know, with a, with a functional dispersion pattern that could be played with? Um, it would be fascinating to see because, to see, because let's face it, the, the physics of impact and resulting trajectory and spin were different with old equipment, you know, with where, you know, you move a fraction off a center strike, you know, what that does to the ball spin and oh. deflection, like there, you know, with the way the ball spun, there were differences there than they are today. And I would just love to see, you know, what, like these players that, you know, Jack chased it, or I don't say chased it since he sought to, you know, maximize and, and did so very well. And what would like a Bryson look like right now, if he had to, you know, play that Davis love for Simmon driver, um, you know, what would that, what could that swing be pushed to? Uh, I think it's a fascinating question and act like he could do what he does right now. Um, I think it's disingenuous. Maybe he could, maybe he couldn't. Uh, and, and it would be cool to see someone chasing something with track man uh, and what they be, what they can maybe accomplish with that. It, it would just be neat to see. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think, you know, again, a big part of it too, is the old equipment had a lot of uncertainty with it. And what we have now has complete certainty. I mean, you can get your equipment dialed into a level of specification that could have never been done, you know, uh, 35 years ago. I mean, you're just not going to, you know, if you're talking about, you know, persimmon woods, literally every one of them is different. Yeah, you know what I mean? I mean they, there's no way to, there's no way to have, you know, two that are exactly the same. Mm -hmm. And, you know, today, I mean, if you've, you know, once you get your driver dialed in, you, you've got the specs, they can build it exactly the same as, you know, uh, uh, or exactly how you want it. Um, you know, it's like a, uh, you know, it's like comparing a, a, a jet fighter to a, you know, horse and buggy. Um, and, you know, I, and I think that was the th one of the things that, I, that, that, you know, again, when you sort of romanticize about where golf used to be, um, you know, you, you to, in order to, master that craft and, it, and i think it was more of a craft um you really had to you know it's like hogan you say you know, the answers are in the dirt they're still in the dirt but they're also in the track man <laughs> you know what i mean like there, uh there was a sense of i don't know if the best if this is the best way to phrase it but a way i thought about it, there was a sense of just randomness and luck to the game in that yes. way and 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 there's an argument to be made. Is that a good or bad thing? Um, I certainly side on. I think that's a good thing. Having to mentally deal with randomness and luck. It's why I like firm conditions versus soft conditions of having to 
just see that ball in the air and it hits on the ground and takes that one kick opposite of where you think it, it was going and it's you know 30 feet away down in a swale rather than right beside the pin and you having to mentally you know wrestle through that uh, i think that's a good thing and so you know i think it's a good question to ask like how much do we want equipment to be perfect or not like you know to what level is that is that I think saying it good or bad for the game is the right, but just how much do we want that to be a part of the game, especially at the highest level? Cause like, yeah, you go back to Seve, like that creativity and just the craftiness, um, you know, and having equipment that was a little bit more random, a little bit more luck. And you know, if your driver broke, well, shoot, you might be searching for six months for one that performed the same yeah. as that one. Um, that's just, yeah, it's, it's cool to think about, you know, professional sports that isn't, so dialed in where the equipment is just manufactured that precisely um because golf is unique in that way it's you know it's more akin to an f1 than maybe a baseball in that way right where yep. golf's more f1 on the technology side where baseball you know by and large a bat's a bat um the league controls the balls you know they move them around as they as they want to move them around um and that that is what it is you know, you talk about that randomness, and I think about a conversation Alan Shipnuck and I had not too long ago, right after Dustin had won the Masters, and we were sort of talking about, you know, um, you know his career, uh, and, and you know how you compare it to those from other eras, and you know one of the things we talked about was because the equipment is so good, because the ability to analyze data is so good. Uh, because of the conditions of the courses, because of the uh, conditions of the athletes themselves, right? The playing field is so much more level. It's so much more difficult to really break out far and above anybody else. Um, you know, again, a player like that who's had, you know, Dustin who's had this amazing career, you know, people kind of wonder, well, you know, he's, he's only won two majors. But it, it's so much harder to go rack up nine major, you know, Think about like a, a Tom Watson career where he won nine majors. It is just incredibly difficult in today's world to be able to go out and do that. Even, you know, you know, Tiger kind of was able to take advantage, I think, of one of those sort of eras of, of great transition, right? Where thing, a lot a few different things broke his way. Uh, and he was still able to really distance himself from everyone else of his generation. But you think back again, rant to me at least, uh, randomness allows the better players to break out. Uh, because when you kind of, I would think when you disperse their skill set over, you know, over time, even uh, with higher amounts of random uh, happenstance in there, uh, their abilities would show through even more. Yeah, I think, you know, tying that back to equipment, if we think about face performance and we thought, okay, how much, how much should the ball maybe spin when you, you know, get a centimeter off a center strike? Um, and what should that look like? Well, you know, if it spins a little bit more or whatever, that variance to your point would let the most solid ball strikers shine a little bit more, right? It just gives them a little yeah. bit more separation, which in golf, a little bit can go a long way to use a cliche. Um, so yeah, it's just, you think about that in terms of randomness and equipment and, even conditioning down on firmness, right? Because the softer the course conditions are, the less variance there is in, in shot dispersion patterns. Um, you know, all those things can definitely, definitely work to to 
level the playing field out, uh, which then there's the counterpoint to the PGA Tour level. Well, for TV, maybe that's what they want, right? Maybe maybe that's their best viewership project yeah. because unless it's a Tiger, like obviously Tiger running away with things, you know, just the, the trans uh, the transformational player he was, he was must watch TV even when he won by 15. And I, and I don't think oh, people yeah. would say the same about, um, and no offense to Patrick Cantley, but I don't think people would say the same about Patrick Cantley running away with a 15-shot lead. You know, in terms of tuning yeah. in, yeah. so the, in some way, I guess the PGA Tour benefits from, you know, the more lumped that field can be. Because I don't know about you, Jay, but if I'm watching on Sunday when there's eight guys within one shot of lead, it is a lot of fun to be watching that. That. Hockey. Oh yeah. No, there's no doubt. I mean, you know, to your point, I mean, if you've got, you know, kind of, you know, one of the maybe, not to you know discredit their talents, but you know, just run of the mill players it's broke out to a five shot lead on Sunday, you know, that's, that's usually a Jim Nance nap, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but, uh, it, it is interesting. I, I, I think that, um, by eliminating a lot of those variables, um, it also makes it a little bit more kind of boring to watch too. I, you think, know? I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing I'm speaking for you two here, you as well on this. Uh, I think that's why we love watching the open. Right. Oh yeah. Some of that's interjected in and I get, you know, it's also N equals one. Like we only get to see that, you know, a couple times a year. So there's a novelty to it uh, because we don't get to see that style of golf very often. Uh, But I still think it'd be true if we saw it 10 times a year, like there's something watching that style of golf where the ball gets on the ground. There's a randomness to it, a, a non-predictability. You know, when that ball is coming down, like you, you, you know, playing over there, like you can't predict what it's going to do when it lands. There's just something, something that does to the heart and to the mind when you're playing the game. That's just, it's, I love that. And I wish we had more of that uh, in the game. Well, then there's an element to it, you know, and I, I think for those who travel and play, particularly, um, you know, a lot of the newer offerings uh, available in the United States that are, you know, uh, firm and sand-based type, you know, golf courses at the Stream Songs and Bandits and Sand Valleys of the world. Um, you know, obviously, if you travel, you know, across the pond to the UK. Uh, but, you know, there's, a, there's an element of guessing that comes into play when you're talking about that variability uh, that comes with firmness. Uh, and having to bring the ground in play. So you have to make a decision and try to execute on that decision without knowing what the hell is going to happen once it hits the mm. ground. And so so when you are able to pull that off, and not only does the guess turn out right, but the bounce turns out right, you've kind of got this, you know, this sort of uh, you know, triple excitement that 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 breaks out you were able not only were you able to guess right you were able to hit it right and then you got the bounce right so you you there's this elation that really really comes as you watch that ball move into the hole and you know when if you're playing kind of a you know run-of-the-mill american course uh you know a little wet a little doughy and and you know your decision you really had to make is what club do i hit you know it's still a lot of fun uh, but, but not, not the same, you know, you just don't have that, that elevated, you know, sense of, uh, wonder and joy, I think, uh, that comes with a different kind well, of, I'm thinking that anticipation you get when that ball's in the air, 
right? And you're watching it. And I'm thinking every time I go up to Sweetens Cove, that first wedge shot I hit into the first hole. And you're sitting there, you're just <laughs> watching that ball in the air. You're like, is this going to land where I need it? And then what's going to happen from there, right? And does it suck back off that false front? Does it get up onto the kicker and spin down to the right, that back right pin? Or does it roll back into the, the collection area off that green? You just sit there with that anticipation of like, oh, I just really hope I hit my number because if I didn't or if the ball doesn't react how I predicted, like who knows where this thing is going to be and how bad it could be. You know, I could, I could go from a tap in birdie to a working working hard for a five or six, you know, in just one little bounce. And that's just, yeah, that sensation and anticipation is just, it's hard to replicate. And uh, it's very different than, you know, when I play my home course here in Athens, which can be soft because of the Georgia clay, especially. Uh, and it's got some really interesting greens. I love the place, uh, but I'm thinking when it's soft, um, let's say, you know, and I know when I hit that wedge, like, well, when it's in the air, I know that it's going to be inside 20 feet, right? I can basically predict it, you know, 10 feet off the face. You know, it's going to be inside 20, maybe closer, you know, to 10 or five, um, but you lose that anticipation. Uh, you kind of know, well, it's going to be okay uh, because of the soft conditions. As a well-traveled man uh, and someone who appreciates, uh, you know, that um, variety in golf, um, what, you you know, you talked about going up to Sweden's. What do you think so compelling about that place? What do you? How would you? Um, you know, you got Joe Bag of Donuts golfer who's never been there and has maybe heard the legends. Uh, how would you describe that? Yeah. Somewhere? So, oh, I don't want to wax too poetic here because of just my affinity and love for the place. Like, and I, I think, I mean, it, I think I always have to start with the people. Like, I, I think it's un, like, obviously the course is the most important part, right? Like the place doesn't exist without a golf course. Um, but it, it starts and ends with the people there, right? I mean, Rob is one of the most genuine people in the world. Um, and there's a reason, there's a reason so many of us are attached to that place. And, you know, one of those big reasons is to support Rob and want him to be successful because of how awesome a person he is and how creative he is and just how good he is at what he does. Uh, Tad as well. Um, and then, you know, you got Patrick Boyd, uh, who just what he did early on with that place in terms of just sitting in that shed, you know, on a 35 degree day and, <laughs> you know, wanting the place to be successful and, you know, Ari and then the, the OG members and all that and everything they, they pumped into the place. Um, so obviously that, that's a huge piece of it. And I'm thankful to know, know a lot of them and have them in my life and it's made my life better. Uh, but then I think to some, some of the stuff you touched on, especially with the randomness, like when you play that golf course and you said it, I forget what sentence you said back, you know, early on in this podcast about it, like you're seeing something different every time you play it. Uh, every, I mean, you get done with that ninth hole and the first thing you want to do is go to the first tee. There's nothing else you want to do. You just want to go the first tee, put it back in, and go around again. And that's crazy to think about that for a nine. How many 18-hole places can you say that about? I can't say it about many. Like, yeah. You know, you, I think of some of the places you play, and you get done with the 18th hole, and you're like, wow, I got beat up. I'm ready to go you know, in and eat some lunch and go home. Where there, it's like you just want to go around and around because every single shot outcome presents you with something different, a different look. Um, different options like should I play it off this kicker should I play it off this slope should I play the high wedge in the low wedge like all those things are running through your mind the entire time and often you're sharing it with awesome people right where you can just engage with them about the course and you just develop this really holistic relationship with the people you're playing with and the grounds that you're walking 
um, that I really just haven't experienced at, at too many other places. I have to say. There's a, there's a feeling you get, you know, you do winding around, um, you know, the, the road coming in there, you know, it's like, you know, got a little, little taste of deliverance, yeah, yeah. you know, around you. And, um, and you pull in that gravel parking lot and like, I, I, I don't really know how to even describe it. I struggle to find the words cause it's just so different. And you have this sort of like, it really, it is kind of a field of dreams sort of, yeah. sort of moment. Mark, um, so Mark Colwell, one of the, uh, the runners of new club golf society. He said it in a way that I think captures mm-hmm. it perfectly. I think field of dreams is a great comparison too, but he made a very one that's special to me as a, like in my kid, I love this movie. He's like, when you pull in, it's like the land before time when they come across the Valley, right? <laughs> like he's like, he's like, that like you good. said, when you're pulling in, it's a little bit of like deliverance feel. It's very wooded, right? The woods are on top of you, that road, if it's a little wet or whatever, like, you know, I would definitely say don't ever drive intoxicated on that road because it's, you know, it's, Oh yeah, you could put in a ditch pretty Dangerous. quickly, and then all of a sudden you just emerge, and you just you're looking out on that place. And for me, it's always when I get to two green. Two's my favorite hole in the course, but when I get to two green uh-huh. and three tee box complex, and you look back up at the shed, and you just sit there and say, "How does a place like this exist?" Right? Like that's just like yeah. every time I play it, I, I get I get that thought right, right when I get there, um, and it's just it's special, yeah. Yeah, two's a sleeper. Uh, it, it it a little I would call it one of the more unassuming holes out there, and then uh, but it's it's got a lot of good a lot of good uh, things built into it. Um, you, you mentioned new club. Uh, I know that's something that's near and dear to your heart. Tell me about that uh, that world and what that what uh, what new club. Yeah, so one about. of the great connections I've made and friendships um, that I've made and you know, through golf is Matt Considine. So he was a teammate at Akron and we roomed together at Akron for a couple of years. Um, and he's become one of my, you know, longest, closest friends, you know, someone that if something super special happens in my life, good or bad, he's, you know, one of the first five people that knows about it probably. Uh, but I'll never forget it. So I was sitting on a tarmac somewhere waiting. We've been docked for an hour and a half and we weren't going to fly for like another hour. And just sitting there airplane and get a call from him. And typically I would never pick up on an airplane, but I was already frustrated enough that we we're just sitting there. So I was like, I'll pick this up. And uh, he, he mentioned this idea of new club golf society. So he had spent time over um, at Cork studying abroad and becoming very familiar with the golf society um, and golf club scene in the UK and in Ireland. And uh, he had that idea of doing that in Chicago. Um, and so I became him and Mark Colwell, uh, you know, our, our partners in that. And I, I became sort of a sounding board from them, an external person to just bounce ideas off, you know, no investment in it, just just friendship and wanting something like that to, to thrive. So I, I became a good unfiltered, like they could bounce ideas off of and I could give my opinion and they could say, well, your opinion is worthless or, OK, yeah, that makes sense. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and so something it'd be something I became very invested in in terms of personally just wanting to succeed. And so uh, I ended up striking up basically helping run their ambassador program. So as I've been traveling a lot, you know, people ask about new club and obviously being a, at the time a Chicago centric thing, it didn't make sense for anybody that wasn't Chicago centric to to be a part of. And I got a little tired of telling people that. And so we, we struck up this uh, sort of ambassador program, which is true to the name. You know, if you join as an ambassador, 
you are an ambassador of New Club Golf Society. Um, you're just getting plugged into the network of all the members and ambassadors, and then you become a champion for the society itself. Um, and from that, an Atlanta market's now emerged where we have a local Atlanta chapter. And then long-term hoping, obviously, other, you know, chapters open up across the nation that are, you know, home-based in a city where those home-based in a city chapters are just like a traditional UK society where they're, you know, golf clubs without a specific home, um, but they're, you know, able to play across the, the city at different times with their own standing tee times that they're able to take advantage of. And, and most importantly, they get plugged into a community of like-minded golfers, you know, that are playing it for the right reasons that you know, you can trust that if you're teeing it up with, you know, a new club golf society group, you're going to enjoy who you're playing with and you're going to connect at some level over the game uh, in life. Uh, so it's just been, been an absolute blast to be a part of that and to watch Matt and Mark grow that into something, something really, really cool. I think the emergence of, you know, the American uh, golf societies in the last few years is probably one of the the great bright spots um, in the game. Um, You know, particularly when, when a lot of, you know, the headlines out there were about the struggles golf was going through. Obviously now we're going through a little bit of a, a a boom um, of, of some regard. Um, I just, I've always thought it was such a, a meaningful thing to see that finally kind of, uh, find its stride here in the United States. Um, and, and in particular, because I think it helps, it's one of the key ways, um, of spreading, um, a certain way of thinking about the game, uh, that goes beyond, you know, just sort of the, um, maybe what the retail golfer, uh, experiences, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you, especially on the part that you, the point that you made, just this being an exciting time. Because I think one of the things I love the most about the golf society movement is like the lack of attachment to a golf course. So a lot of those societies look for the compelling golf courses and golf clubs, and then also seek to, um, how to say it, I guess I'd say like take care of those clubs in the sense of spread the word about them, right? Support them. And really like you think of the canal shores movement up in Chicago and what's happened there. Uh, You know, things like that occurring where, you know, it's going to get more golf courses on our radar that should be on our radar. Uh, And it's just going to more support them, which is, which is exciting and something that we need. Yeah. So Jay, are you, uh, are you familiar with Clearview golf club in Ohio? I feel like I've heard it, uh, Kevin, but I'm not sure I know the particulars off the top of my head. So you might have heard it recently because uh, Renee Powell has been honored, um, I think mm-hmm. it was by the USGA. Well, anyways, so Clearview Golf Club, which I grew up just down the street from, probably no more than 30 minutes from, um, it was the first um, golf course in the United States that I believe it was designed, built, and owned by uh, an African-American. Hmm. Right. And it still exists this day in the Powell family. Um, I think it was William Powell, I believe, um, was Renee's dad or grandpa that that did it. Um, I believe a World War II vet at the time at the time when he got came and built the golf course. Um, You know, and I think of places like that, you know, that just nobody knows of or really hears of because of the history of American golf and what it's privileged and put forward. Um, but with the emergence of golf societies, like, you know, there's the opportunity to for those places to become more well known as golf societies seek to play golf courses 
you know, outside of a, a country club like you would normally see where most, you know, most of us brought up in American golf, identify American golf with, well, you're a member somewhere or you play somewhere exclusively, even if it's mm-hmm. a public place um, and you don't really travel and seek out places. Um, so that's one of the really exciting things I always think about in terms of golf societies, especially in my relationship with the new club is the opportunity to identify some compelling golf courses with cool histories that, you know, really look at golf in a creative uh, and soulful way and, uh, you know, really go after those places and try to see them and, and experience them and learn from them. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. There are some industries that obviously have been maybe totally flipped on their head or even, um, you know, impeded by uh, the Internet. Um, and I felt like for a long time golf was was heading in that way. You know, the sort of the golf now-ism of mm-hmm. golf uh, it was, was has really been detrimental in a lot of ways. You know, it kind of created this sort of lowest common denominator, um, you know, uh, appetite out there. And, you know, you're always trying to sort of sell rounds to, you know, the, the, at the cheapest and created lower floors and just, just really a bad system that I think was, uh, harming golf in a lot of ways. But then, um, you know, you saw this, this, this new wave emerge of, um, you know, people using the, the internet to connect with those, uh, who were looking for something different. You know, obviously you, know, you had golf club Atlas that was out there for so mm-hmm. long. Um, and I think that was a, a, a very important piece of it. Um, and now you have, uh, you know, everything from these great societies emerging across the country all the way to, you know, you were talking about Andy earlier. I mean, you know, if you want to, if you, I've, I feel like I was personally able to get a master's level education in golf course architecture by listening to Andy's podcast, really for like those first two years, you know, that he was kind of getting ramped up. Um, you know, cause there were so many names and designers and places that I was hearing about. I'm like, this is just overwhelming to me. I, I I just had no idea there was this much um, added depth into this side of the game, and it and it fun that fundamentally changed my entire golfing life. I mean, it it really has. I, I uh, you know the 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 person that I was as a golfer, you know, ten years ago. I, I mean, it, it's completely unrecognizable to me today. You know what I mean? I just the things I didn't know. Um, and I was, you know, I was golf obsessed still. I just, yeah. it was just a totally different type of experience. And once you find that level of understanding architecture, understanding certain, you know, uh, practices and, and, and finding those kindred spirits, um, I just feel like it, it, it takes you to a whole nother level where, you know, the obsession gets, um, can get really out of hand now. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes we have to I think keep that checked and, uh, you know, checked a little bit, especially those of us with significant others and people uh, yeah. alive because I've definitely crossed some uh, lines in the sense of, you know, all of a sudden we look at the wife and I look at the calendar and she's like, wait, you're going to be gone six of the next eight weekends. It's like, Oh, I did yeah. not have the foresight to think about that. <laughs> Yeah, well, you just you know because you get you get excited, you know, you mm-hmm. want to you you get excited for the people, you get excited for the places, um, you know, and then and, and you know when you add that society element into, you get excited for the the opportunity to compete, uh, which is awesome. So I mean, it, it's you know it's quite the trifecta once you uh, you know reach that level of awareness, maybe we'll call it. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And you think about the relationships you get to develop through this game and especially those type of relationships where, hey, maybe you're, you know, uh, meeting someone random just on way you're when you're passing through somewhere that would have never been enabled, you know, 15, 20 years ago. And you're also connecting with someone that, you know, looks at the game in a certain way and you can have certain conversations, which just is, uh, you know, that's just cool. That's just fun. Yeah, it really is. Uh, well, and that's, you know, that's how conversations like this are able to happen. I mean, I've, I've met so many people, um, you know, through the internet, um, that, that you know, again, allow me to find those people who, you know, think of the game in similar ways to me. And in, in what's amazing about, it, I think, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, you know, quote unquote, you know, woke golf and, um, maybe some, um, uh, maybe the like-mindedness being a little, uh, a little too turned up, but, but what I find is that, you know, every time you have a conversation like this one with someone who has at least some similar, you know, foundational respect for the game, um, you end up finding that, you know, there's still an incredible amount of diversity of thought and, uh, and, and feelings about the game and, and certainly personal experiences. There's a lot of similarities, but, um, I just love hearing people's stories just like, hearing yours today a little bit more uh, than I had in the past. And if there's one thing that's true, you know, diversity is a sign of health. And mm-hmm. we will always, you know, I, there's certain go- type of golf courses I like, certain type of architecture, but I'm certainly going to be, I'm not, I'll never be someone that says like a Reese Jones shouldn't have a golf course that holds a major or something like that. Um, you know, having diversity is a good thing. We should see different things and we should seek out to see different things as well. Um, you know, as much as I love playing a 1926 Ross, I'll go play. I'll go play a 98 Fazio. Sure, like sign me yeah. up. Let's go. Let's go do it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm working on a piece right now. Should be in for a landing shortly with Golfer's Journal about um, Fazio. Uh, it's not the story's not necessarily about him, but uh, he's a figure in it uh, down at Worldwoods. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know. If you if you just say okay, I'm not going to play those types of golf courses, you know, you'd really be missing out on some some you know hellaciously good golf down there. Um, and and again, it what what you find is that if you're if you become rigid in your assumptions, um, you and and let that dictate you know where you go, where you don't, uh, you'll you'll find that you're you're going to miss out on a lot of good surprises too, you know. Absolutely. And I think something like those of us that get termed woke sometimes, I think a conflation that occurs um, with the person that's passing that judgment is the difference between a critique and a criticism. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I, I am very after critique. I mean, I'm an, I, I'm a university professor. Like that's our entire job in terms of scholarship and research is built around critique. If you're not critiquing, mm-hmm. you're doing it wrong. And so we never look at critiques as criticisms, like everything can't be perfect. Everything can't be good uh, because if everything is good, nothing's good. Right. If everything's great, nothing's great. So, you know, a lot of us like to engage in levels of critique and we, you know, that's something we enjoy and it's not putting down something else. It's just saying, no, like here's either our preferences or looking at a historical study of the subject, you know, what makes something quality and how the, the foundation of that came along and then giving a critique from that lens, you know, that's, that's what we do. And we enjoy that, right. That's something uh, I know you love to do. And I know myself, I love to do. I always think of uh, one of the best, I think 
critique voices in the world. I think Garrett does a, a phenomenal yes. job, right? I just want to always see more from him because he's he's just so, one of those people that just is able to lay out his biases. But then also, is, you know, his just his, his study of history, uh, especially in the golf world, and, and able to talk about things from that perspective. And he just really levies strong critiques. And um, to me, that's healthy. Like, that's something that, that's healthy for the sport, healthy for the game. And, you know, will help us, uh, I hate to say this phrase, but like stay on track, right? Like, you know, there's some principles and um, certain um, values to the game that we always need to hold on to and that we need to to strive to make sure voices there's voices out there that are, are speaking to that. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, I just this morning, I started grading my, uh, some of my first, um, papers. Yeah, for this, congratulations my, on the, uh, instructing by the way. Yeah. I, I appreciate it. I'm, um, I'm having a lot of fun with it. I had our first class the other night and, you know, virtual is not really what I had hoped for. Yeah. It's different. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've gone down on campus and done a lot of guest lecturing and filling in over the years. And, um, you know, now I'm, I've I got a chance to kind of, uh, you know, teach the world according to Jay, which is fun. And, um, but you know, I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm going through these papers, I'm grading them. And I, 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 f- I feel like I'm the same part of my brain that analyzes the golf course is the same part of my <laughs> brain. That's like grading a paper. Right. You know, because. Uh-huh. Cause you can have, you know, you're going to have some, someone's going to write something and submit it to you. And it's, you know, it's really good and there's depth and it's, you know, at every turn they, they bring up another great point. Um, and obviously, you know, maybe that's a you know 10 out of 10, but you know, sometimes you'll, you'll have a paper where, you know, there's maybe a lot of mundane in it, but boy, there's one point in there. that's just fantastic. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And you go, okay, well, how do I, how do I compare that to the one that was, you know, 10 out of 10, because this point's so good. Maybe it's a 10 out of 10. Maybe that one point alone is enough to carry it. So like when you think about golf courses, sometimes, you know, I, I one that comes to mind, right. is like, um, uh, black diamond down, uh, in, in central Florida where, you know, there's 12 holes out there, you know, that are the most mundane Fazio stuff you'll ever see, uh-huh. but there's six of them that are absolutely world-class and you ought to see, and you ought to go just to see those six. Yep. Um, and if it was just those six holes, it would be the best six hole golf course in the world. You know what I mean? Uh, so it's like, how do you weigh that? Yeah. It's just a, I don't know, but, but you should try, you know? Yep. 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 Um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it a golf obsession makes for a, uh, adventurous, uh, heart and, uh, if you're, you know, you got a soul willing to go out and chase it, it, it's a, it's a pretty good way to, good, good way to live. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Well, my friend, this has been a wonderful conversation. I'm so glad we had a chance to catch up and, uh, hear how things are going with your new ventures and, uh, life in Athens and, uh, things on the golf course. And hopefully as, uh, you know, the world's healing a little bit on, on a, a few different fronts. Uh, maybe we'll get a chance to tee it up somewhere together in 2021. I would, I would definitely look forward to that, Jay. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, thanks again, man. And I appreciate it. And, uh, keep things running smooth up there at UGA. Okay. You as well down there. All right, buddy. Well, we'll talk to you again soon and, uh, uh, look forward to that chance to see you on a fairway somewhere. Awesome. See you, Jay. All right. See you, pal. Bye-bye.